and turn to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, and I hope that as we look in this passage, that truly we will see the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of His creation, the, the joy that He and He alone can bring to satisfy our soul. And I just hope that you will see this in, in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. You're going to see this flow out and, and come about in His reaction and His discussion with the Sadducees this morning. I, I've been to a lot of funerals. That's not something that is... Uh, that people attain to do in one's life, but uh, I have been. And, um, you know, one of the things that I've been to a lot of different kinds of funerals even, and um, I've been to funerals where uh, one lady was a, a, a biker and she uh, passed away from a, an accident that she had. And, you know, one of the things in all the different kinds of funerals that you, uh, that you go to, I've never been to one where they say, well, that was it. There, there's no hope. I mean, the people that are even irreligious, the people that don't think about God generally, they'll say things like, you know, well, so-and-so is looking down, or so-and-so is happy, or so-and-so is in a better place. That's what, they, that they, that's what they always talk about. Nobody says, well, they don't exist anymore, and that's it. Uh, you know, many believe in an afterlife of sorts. This is a common thing, and I, I believe that it comes from uh, just Scripture that teaches that God has put eternity in man's heart. So you go back to the ancient Egyptians, and they're preparing for the afterlife. You look at Native Americans, and they prepare for the afterlife. You look at all sorts of different religions, and they're preparing for an afterlife of some way, some sort. Whether it be a spirit or energy force or whatever it is, there's always people who seek to have this desire, this thought that this is not the end. And despite the godlessness that we have in America, the percentage of Americans that believe in heaven is nearly three-fourths. Now, it's a little smaller for hell. Not as many people believe in hell as they do in heaven. But a, a Pew Research... Um, recently in November of 2021 talked to Americans about heaven and hell about three-fourths of Americans believed in heaven even 37 percent of religious but unaffiliated believed it 26 percent of agnostics believed in heaven and even three percent of atheists believed in heaven I, I saw another thing where uh, there, there were a whole host of atheists who prayed and I thought who are they praying to? But that's not talking about here. So I, I, I like to read and I like to, to see what various kinds of people hold to and believe about life or about religion, about Christianity. And so not too long ago, I read an article by uh, the, the great political and great theologian Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was talking uh, in an interview, and I, I was just fascinated to hear, what, what does he think? And uh, they, they had asked him, they said, well, you know, what happens to us when we die? And he said, um, nothing. He said, you're six feet under. Anyone that tells you something else is a liar. He says, I, I don't know exactly what happens with the soul and all this spiritual stuff that I'm not an expert in, but I know that the body as we see each other now, we will never see each other again like that. He, he grew up a Catholic, went to Catholic church, went to Catholic school, learned Bible, learned catechisms, and he just thinks when you go in the ground, that's it. You're done. You're, you just you fall asleep and that's it forever. He and actually Danny DeVito were talking about this, and they said, you know, it's really sad. That's the, that's the saddest part. And they said, yeah, you know, life is really good 
Life is really good. Schwarzenegger said that it's, a, it's accepting some fantasy when people talk about, I will see them again in heaven. It sounds good, but the reality is we won't see each other again after we're gone. That's the sad part. I know few people feel comfortable with death, but I don't. It must be terrible to live like that, to think like that. Um, Jesus here is actually going to demolish that thinking. He is going to shatter that thinking. Uh, Because when you think that there is nothing else, that this is the only life, then this is where you're going to put everything that you have. This is what you're going to strive for. All of your hopes, all of your dreams, all of your joy. Jesus is going to teach actually something greater. He's going to teach something that is going to be uh, an encouragement, I hope, to us this morning. You see, the enemies of Christ had been trying to trap Jesus. They had been trying to get Him. They had been trying to somehow get rid of Him. He had been stealing much of the enthusiasm. He had been picking off people who were following Him now. And the religious leaders didn't like that. They didn't like that at all. They wanted their own following. They wanted their own power, their own prestige. They had tried numerous times. The chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the, uh, and the elders, um, they had uh, tried to trap him. And where do you get this authority, Jesus, earlier in the passage? It's important to note that this is the week where Jesus is on his road uh, to his death. This is probably Wednesday of the week in just two days Jesus would be crucified so you see here they're 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 really ramping things up to try to get Jesus they tried to trap him in the uh, uh, questions of a excuse me of authority then they tried to trap him in the question of politics what about paying taxes how are you going to pay taxes to to caesar and jesus answered that that you are to give yourself to god because it is in his image that He has made you. And so now that those two things didn't work, the authority, the politics, they're going to try to get Jesus in one more thing. They're going to try to get Him with theology. They're going to try to get Him at a, at a theological question. And so they bring out uh, some other heavy hitters. Now, it's, it's interesting to note that while Jesus was serving, whether it was in Galilee or wherever he was, that it was most of the time he was fighting with the Pharisees and the scribes. But here, Jesus is fighting with the Sadducees, as you're going to see. And this is because this was now their domain. Jesus had made his trip from Galilee. He had traveled down and he had gone through Bethany and he was now staying in Jerusalem. He was there for the Passover. He was there to give himself as the Passover lamb. And when Jesus was going to do this, now he was in the realm of the Sadducees. And especially when Jesus went and entered into the temple and cleansed it, Now, this is where the Sadducees were going to step in. I want you to see the theme this morning. It's it's in your notes on the back of the bulletin. The theme this morning is that those who trust in Christ should trust His Word and not underestimate His covenantal promises, power, creativity, and goodness. All of those things are found here in this rich passage that we're going to unfold and we're going to see. First of all, let's look and see what happens in verses 27 through 33. Here we see the gotcha theological questions. From the very beginning, you know that the Sadducees didn't really care. They didn't really want to know the answer to this question. They thought they had come up with the perfect formula to nail Jesus. That's all that they wanted. They didn't really truly desire the truth. Notice in verse 27, it says, There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. Now, this is another group of the antagonists. They're coming to take the shots at Jesus. Prior to this, you had the scribes and the elders who were, and, and they had hired the spies to come out to Jesus. But this is the very first time that the Sadducees come out and speak against Jesus that Luke records. So, this is the first time that, that they're coming on the scene here 
from Luke. Now, these were the leaders at the temple, and many of them were even chief priests and members of the Sanhedrin. Many of these these, uh, Sadducees were uh, the aristocrats, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But here, they, it is important to note what Luke specifically says about them. Luke says that they did not believe in the resurrection. And I've said it before, but if you're new, and you know, this is, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. This is the only life, and that's why they were sad, you see? Okay? So now you can always remember that and keep them separate. The, the Pharisees, they, they were the conservatives. They believed in resurrection in the afterlife and they believed in angels and the spiritual they also believed in all of their other man-made rules but then you had these sadducees over here and they they they, they there's no such thing as the resurrection as a matter of fact later on in Paul, in the god uh, not the gospel of acts but later on in acts paul is standing before the Sadducees. And, and, you know, one of the best ways to get out of uh, a court situation is to create a disturbance. That's not advice, by the way. I'm just telling you that that's something that Paul used. Here Paul was standing there, and th- there were these Sadducees, and they kind of had him, uh, there was the chief priest, and they kind of had him on trial, and uh, they, they were arguing with him and fighting with him about this stuff, and he knew they didn't believe in the resurrection, but there were all these Pharisees that were there. Now all it takes is you get two groups of people, that differ theologically, just, just throw out there some theological topic, and you're going to have a fight on your hands, okay? That's why people get in all, they get sucked in on, online, you know, you see somebody says something wrong that you think theologically, people, man, they are keyboard warriors, and they spend all their time, and nobody's ever converted, or nobody ever changes their mind from that stuff. But Paul saw that. Paul saw that, and so then he says, well, I, I was a Pharisee, and I believe in the resurrection. And all the Pharisees rise up, and they're like, yeah, that's right. The resurrection is true. And, and the Sadducees are like, no, it's not. And so then there was this huge ruckus, this big fight, and they have to whisk Paul away. Trial's kind of over. He creates a diversion by throwing this out because he knows what his opponents are like. As a matter of fact, it tells us a little bit about the Sadducees. It says in Acts 23, 6-8, it says, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor are there angels, nor do they believe in the Spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge all of them. You see, one of the things you're going to see is Jesus, when He gives His answer you are going to see Jesus hit all of those things. He's going to talk about the resurrection. He's going to talk about the angels. He's also going to point back to Moses, which is indeed very important. You see, Josephus records, actually, that they did not hold to an afterlife. They didn't hold to rewards or punishments. You die and that's it, like many secular Jews today. They were a worldly group. They were an aristocratic group. Uh, They had the money. They were much more likely to be in cahoots with Rome because, hey, that's where the power is. So they were happy to be along with Rome as long as it enabled them to have power there in the temple and to make money because after all this is what we are living for and so it says that uh, they love their power and prestige they probably came from Zadok which was the high priest under David along this group they were a priestly group but it's weird to us here were the high priests the priests of the temple they didn't even believe in the resurrection one of the things that they specifically did not do and they differed from the pharisees about was the pharisees not only held to the entire old testament which was good but they also added all these extra laws right you remember all those extra laws you can't you can throw something on the sabbath you can throw something up in the air and you can catch it with the same hand but if you throw something up in the air and you catch it with the other hand that's work okay just crazy stuff all kinds of crazy things and and so the sadducees said we don't believe in any of that stuff as a matter of fact we are so pure we really only hold to moses we really only hold to the torah 
See, in the Old Testament times, and, and this is what Jesus is living in, right? He's living in the Old Testament times. In the Old Testament times here, there were three divisions of the Old Testament. You had the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Kethavim. Okay? You have the, the law, the writings, and the prophets. So you have the, the law, which are the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Torah, the books of Moses. From there, you have the writings. And these were all of the you know, Psalms and Proverbs and all of these writing books. Then you have all of the prophet books. And they did not believe in the prophets, and they didn't believe in the writing so much as what Moses wrote. And to them, they said, you see, you go back to Moses and what Moses wrote, there's no such thing as the resurrection. You see, the resurrection is very clearly pointed out, expanded, if you will, in the Old Testament. Look at Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. Look at the great promise that we have that Isaiah records here. He says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to its dead. One of the greatest verses that teach this is Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, where it says, And many of those who, asleep, or who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You see, it appears they didn't believe those teachings. They didn't believe the writings of Isaiah. They didn't believe the writings of Daniel. It, it shows up in Psalms, Psalm 16, 11, where, it talks, where God speaks of the fact that Jesus fulfills this, but David sits at the, th the throne of, of David, that there's great joy before him forevermore. They don't believe any of those writings because they hold to the Torah. And so their question actually comes from Moses. That's why they bring this up. They have this question in verse 28. Teacher, they're being respectful. Moses, that's why they, that's why they go back to Moses. They, they want to catch Jesus with a question from their leader, Moses. Moses wrote that if a man's brother dies, having a wife and no children, a man must, under, must take the widow and rise up offspring for his brother. That's quoting basically Deuteronomy 25.5. Speaks of uh, this idea of uh, leveret marriage. We'll talk about that in, here in a second. And so then they proceed with a whole host of what-ifs. What if this woman has... Uh, her husband, he dies, no child. Then here comes another and another, all the way up to seven. And then finally, she dies. Now, this is most likely this did not actually happen. Most likely what is going on is they're just saying, hey, what if all this, let's apply this. Now, you don't believe in adultery. You don't believe in multiple marriages, Jesus. So basically, by saying all of this, if you truly believe that there is a resurrection from the dead, well, then whose wife is she going to be? Gotcha, Jesus. Because we know you're not going to say, well, she's... All, all their husbands are hers. You're not going to approve of that. We got you. See, that's what they think. Number, point number one in application, we need to beware of erudite elitists who question God's word. Okay? I put that in there. I used that word on purpose, you know, erudite. These pseudo-intellectualists, these people that think they're, they're so smart, and they're so elite, they know so much more than you do because uh, they have this learning. And that's what, the, that's what the Sadducees were. You see, it reminds us of, let me just give a real brief few things here. It reminds us of the, the Jesus Seminar. Uh, point that the Jesus Seminar really isn't about Jesus and it's not a seminar. You might think, oh, Jesus Seminar, I'll go to that. Well, no, you really wouldn't want to go to that. It was actually a whole group of quote-unquote 
scholars and included a bunch of other folks who did not believe in the historicity of Jesus. And so they were on the search for it. It included movie critics and filmmakers and all kinds of these people and people that went to places such as Harvard and Vanderbilt and, you know... All these places, most of them, they didn't include any evangelical scholars. And what they would do is they would take, they would take all the New Testament readings of Jesus all through the Gospels and they would vote. They would, they would read this passage, for instance. They would read this passage and they would say, Now, do you really think that Jesus said these words? And so they would look at anthropology and they would look at psychology and they would uh, dabble with all sorts of these things. And then they would they would come down to a vote. All these all these people sitting in a room and what they would do is they would vote using marbles, a bunch of New Testament scholars, quote unquote, playing with marbles. And uh, they had different colors, red, basically red meant yeah, we think Jesus probably said something similar to this. Uh, pink meant, well, Jesus uh, said something like it, but maybe not exactly. Gray meant, well, he didn't say this, but the idea is captured. Or a black marble meant, no, Jesus didn't say it. It probably came from one of his late followers. How in the world they could figure this stuff out? As a matter of fact, one of the commentaries that I read regularly actually reports, be, understand, it, it, just, it just shares, this is what the, the Jesus seminar says about this. And almost always they say, well, most of the time they don't think that Jesus said anything. That it's all a fabrication of, of all of this stuff. Uh, and just in giving the background. But this is a very popular thing today. You might not think it, because hopefully you don't read this trash, but uh, somebody like Bart Ehrman from uh, North Carolina University, uh, he's a New Testament scholar, graduated, by the way, from Moody Bible Institute, and Wheaton went off to Princeton, where he uh, lost his faith. He has some New York Times bestseller books, such as Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why, and books like Jesus Interrupted, revealing the hidden contradictions in the Bible, where he states this, The Bible is filled with discrepancies, many of them irreconcilable contradictions. Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John did not write the Gospels. He goes on farther and says, uh, The or further, and says, the Exodus probably did not happen as described in the Old Testament. The conquest of the Promised Land was probably based on legend. The Gospels are at odds on numerous points and contain non-historical material. It is hard to know whether Moses ever existed and what exactly the historical Jesus taught. And this is popular stuff. The reason why this is important is because Bart Ehrman regularly shows up on the History Channel. When they want to talk about the Bible, they don't go and get some guy from Southern Seminary or from Dallas or, you know, from some conservative school. Well, they, oh, let's go get Bart Ehrman. When CNN wants to interview someone, that's where they go. People Magazine or Time Magazine, all these places. And so this is where they feed this stuff in. People that don't believe the scriptures and cast doubt on this. By the way, this is not something new. This has been going on for a long, long time. Just look at Isaiah 36. Don't have time to read the whole thing, but it's where Rabshakeh says, Hey, listen, you know, your king, King Hezekiah, is going to go down. He's going to be telling you all that you should trust in the Lord and that the king of Assyria is not going to take you. You better not listen to him. Don't listen to the word of the Lord. He sought to push them down. One of the most fascinating passages I find is Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. He's in prison because he was simply proclaiming the truth. So here he is in prison, but the word of the Lord comes to him, and he calls his trusty sidekick Baruch, and Baruch comes to him and he says, hey, I want you to write this stuff down. So he writes this stuff down and takes it to the king, Jehoiakim. And he takes it to Jehoiakim and he says, I want you to read this. You need to have this read before you. So Jehoiakim grabs all the people in 
and they hear the word of the Lord. And it's all these warnings. Listen, you're going to fall. You're going to go into captivity. Don't Beware, because God wants you to repent. He wants you to turn. If you do, the Lord will change you. And here's the response. Jehudi, who was the, 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 one of the clerks, takes the scroll, and it says that he read, in, this is found in Jeremiah chapter 36, 21-34, to 34, Jehudi read three or four columns of the writing of Jeremiah. And here's what he did. It says the king, that as he was reading three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed with fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard these words were afraid, and neither did they tear their garments. So here, here's the king, the king of Israel. taking It's like taking the Bible and just ripping pages out and throwing it into the fire and laughing and mocking. That's really what the Sadducees were just like. That's what like Bart Ehrman is like. That's what all of these... Be- and so we, we need to beware of, of these things lest they creep in. Now I want you to look at point number two here where we see the theological acumen of Jesus. Jesus is very precise. Now Jesus was not warned about this. I want you to think about this for a minute, okay? Jesus was not warned that you're going to be having a debate with the Sadducees. But in a moment, in an instant, he goes and hears what they say, and he comes up with one of the most brilliant theological discourses and nails them in every single way that you cannot help but just say, wow, Jesus, this is amazing. You're going to see such a brilliant discussion. First of all, Jesus begins with saying, I don't believe the premise. What you're saying is not true. You have a false assumption in verse 34 to 36. Notice what it says. Jesus says to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Notice that word in this age. What Jesus is saying is in this age, this is how it happens. He says, but in verse 35, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age, a different age, and to the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. I think it's important to note that if you do a cross-reference and you flip over to Matthew 22, verse 29, the way that Matthew records this is he says this, but Jesus answered them, the Sadducees, You are wrong because you, number one, know neither the Scriptures, and number two, you don't know the power of God. You're wrong, and you're you're assuming something on God because you don't know the Scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. It's very important that we actually know the Scriptures and what they teach. The Sadducees didn't. He says, you have made this false assumption. You think that everything in this life is going to carry on. You're assuming that everything in this life is going to carry on exactly the way it is in the next. And that simply isn't true. He says, for instance, in this age, there's marriage. In the following age, to those who are worthy to attain, in other words, those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ, they don't marry and they're not given in marriage. First of all, we need to look at that one little phrase where Jesus says, to those who are considered worthy to obtain. Not everyone is worthy of this. Jesus is, that's what he is saying. If you look uh, in John chapter 5, we don't have time to turn there and do a whole discourse of it, but Jesus is arguing for and discussing the authority that he has. And Jesus in John chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, specifically in verse 21, He says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. It is the, the, the Father's desire to give life to whoever He desires to give life to. And then in verse 24, this is really the kicker, because Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So who has eternal life? Those who believe in Christ. 
He says, He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. He does not say He has passed from death unto life until He dies again. He says, He has come from death to life. Then in verse 28 and 29, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, here comes, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have gone and done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. He's not saying, look, we're going to put on a balancing scale here. You have to go back to verse 24 where He says, those who believe in the Son, those are the ones who have done good those are the ones who have obeyed those are the ones who have believed and christ gives them life so he teaches on the resurrection now jesus says in in this age they marry in the next age they're not he gives the reason for this in verse 36 he says because or for they cannot die anymore he said they can't die anymore So because you can't die anymore, there's no need for replenishment. There's no need for uh, having children. You you don't need children to repopulate, to take your place. You know, like we we, we talk about, you know, in a hundred years from now, if the Lord doesn't return and destroy the earth and make all things new, in a hundred years, there's going to be a new pastor, there's going to be a whole new congregation out there. Okay? We're going to be replaced. And that is supposed to take place by and through marriage. Mar- you, you, you get married, you have kids. That, that's, that's the idea that he is saying. And so Jesus says in, in the age to come, that's not what is going to be needed. Because those who are the sons of the resurrection are forever. They live forever. They do not die. Now that's great hope. But he says that this is the, the way that it goes. He says in this one way, they have the same attribute as angels. You see, the number of angels is fixed. Angels don't die. The number of angels is fixed. God created them and they exist. They don't die. They don't have little baby angels. There's no, you know, angel birth parties and all that kind of, I mean, they're, they're, they're there. You don't have angel showers. Hey, we're having a little, we're a little, little angel, right? They, they don't do that. You, you, you've got all the angels and some of them fell and and some of them you know continue and remain with with god and um he says that that number is fixed so is the same with the church okay the the same for the the israel of god there there is a fixed number there there is his bride and they they do not die they they live and go on forever so in that regard, they are like the angel. He's not saying, you know, you're going to be able to see through them or they're going to have wings and you're going to flutter. By the way, every time you see angels in the Bible, every time you see angels in the Bible, what do people do? They don't go, oh, what a cute little angel. Wow. Come on. No, they hit the ground, don't they? I mean, they fear you remember those Roman guards that were guarding the tomb of Jesus? I mean, the angels showed up and they didn't go, oh, wow, what pretty angels. Let me get a snap of that. Uh, they, these, were, these were the elite military personnel and they shook like dead men. They were fearful. That gives you little insight when you you know look down and call your little kid oh precious little angel or something i don't know but the point is that that that's what angels are like we've allowed it to become something different you know probably from the 80s or 90s whenever that ridiculous show touched by an angel came out and okay anyway so you you see here that we're like the angels only in the fact that we exist forever and we are there for god verse 36 he says because they are sons of God, sons of the resurrection. So we have obtained to that. And now Jesus, we, we need to understand point number two is that we need to thoughtfully prepare for eternal life. Eternal life is forever. They thought, the, the Sadducees thought, there is no such thing. But sometimes we are like functioning Sadducees. I, I, I got to gather all this stuff. I got I to gotta live for 
today. I got to live for, you know, such a, and, and he said, listen, you, you need, you're going to be living forever somewhere else in a different place in a different time. You're a pilgrim, right? So you need to live like that. Don't be a functioning Sadducee. You say, oh, I believe in eternal life, but we need to thoughtfully prepare for eternal life. Give great thought and weight to it. Second of all, we see what Jesus teaches the resurrection indeed is taught. Where it is actually taught and what it actually is about. Verse 37 and 38. It's interesting to note, actually, isn't it, that when Jesus speaks to the Sadducees, what's the first illustration he says? He says, oh, by the way, they're like angels. They didn't believe in angels either. So he's using an argument that they didn't believe about the resurrection about another thing and saying, oh yeah, angels are true also. Brilliant. So here, Jesus now is going to teach them about the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection. They wanted to quote Moses. Jesus says, fine, I'll quote Moses. I'll talk about Moses with you as well. Verse 37, but that the dead are raised, Jesus is making an, an affirmation there, right? That the dead are raised, the truth that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. What? Moses well, I mean, we, we don't believe Isaiah, we don't believe Jeremiah, we don't believe David in the Psalms. But now you're going to quote Moses? He says, yeah. He says, where, he goes, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush. Now, there's a little skill here in something, and you just have to understand this. You know, sometimes you ever quote a, a Bible verse, and you don't know where the Bible verse is? You know, a good way to save face in that is to, you can say, well, in Romans, Paul says this. And if you can't remember it's in Romans, you say, well, the New Testament says this. And if you can't remember that it's in the New Testament, you say, well, the scriptures say this. And you still sound smart, but in actuality, you have no clue where that thing is found. You just know it's in there, right? Now, every time I say something and I don't give the address, that's what you're going to think. That's just a, just a little trick. Right? Jesus is not doing that here. When Jesus says, Jesus goes, well, you know, there, there's that passage about the bush. Jesus isn't saying, you know, I know that there's something in the, in the Bible about this burning bush or, or something like that. You have to understand that chapter, chapters weren't put in the Bible until like the 1200s. Okay, 1,200 years after Jesus, and, and then the, the verse references even until later uh, after that, a couple hundred years after that. So what Jesus is doing here is he is affirming the truth. He's saying, you remember in the Old Testament, you remember in the writings of Moses where Moses sees the bush? Oh yeah, that's a, that's a very well-known passage, very popular. He says, well, when you turn there in Exodus 3, Actually, it's found in Exodus 3, verse 6. The bush calls out to Moses and it says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Jesus notes something here when he talks about that. He says now in verse 38, He is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to Him. See, He does not say, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Jacob, I was the God of Isaac. He says, I am the God of Abraham. Which means, Abraham is still alive. And if Abraham is still alive, that's because there is an afterlife. There is a resurrection of the dead. And it goes deeper, he says, because everyone lives to him. Notice, I want you to hear what Dale Ralph Davis says about that, this passage. He says, what's behind this, that what Jesus is doing here? He says, I think it goes back to Yahweh's covenant promise to Abraham when he assured him 
that He would be God to you and to your seed after you. Now, if the eternal God pledges Himself to be God to you, that establishes a relation that is as eternal as the God who promised it. Once Yahweh binds Himself to you to be your God, there is no circumstance, no opponent that can ever sever that relation. Even in death, He is still the God who holds you and at the right time will raise you to life. Now, if that doesn't make you excited about the hope and future hope of resurrection and the hope that those who have gone on before us that that they are more alive now than ever before i don't know what does jesus is trying to say listen get your eyes off this world a little bit and look to the future look at the glory of what is going to to be and so sometimes we look at this world as if this is really the greatest that there is I mean, we, we, see, we, we, see, we see the beauty of the earth. We see the beauty of relationships. We see all of these things, and we're like, well, th- I mean, th- this is what I want to hold on to. And what we need to do is point number three. We need to trust your Creator that your future will be greater than imagined. Like, you can't even imagine it. Like, God is telling you, but you're like, nah, that's crazy. I, I can't I can't see how that's going to work out. It's, I gave this illustration, uh, I don't know if it was last Sunday night, Sunday night before, but it's kind of like this. You remember when you were a little kid in first grade, especially for the boys? You remember somebody came along to you and said, now I know during recess you go and you play with the other boys, but there's going to come a time when during recess you're going to want to go and you're going to want to play with the girls. And you go, there is no way. I like my trucks. I like my Transformers. I like my G.I. Joes. I like mud. I like dirt. I like to wrestle and punch and throw footballs and tackle people. And those girls are over there doing pretty stuff. Like, why? Ooh, that's disgusting. And what do, you, what, what do the adults say? Just you wait. Just you wait. You know? And so it changes. Now at that time when you are six, seven, eight, you can't imagine wanting to hang out with girls. But then something happens. And you can't imagine not hanging out with the girls. I mean, you're missing football games. You're not going to the gym anymore. I mean, you're, 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 what are you focused on? Girls, right? Well, you know, God is telling us here, you're looking at all these relationships here on earth, and, and, and there's going to come a day when I'm going to be your all in all, and there's going to be something greater than you can even imagine. And what do we do? We sit there and go, nah. Yeah, there is going to be something much greater. Because whatever God does, whatever God creates, it is indeed good. We have to just trust Him that the future is going to be greater. It is going to be better than we even imagine. It's not going to be worse. That, that's how people view this sometimes. What? There's not going to be any Oh, I mean, all kinds of stuff you're going to miss out. Yeah. Listen, whatever God has planned, and I don't know what He has planned, but it is greater than you can imagine. Point three here, we have the cessation, the stopping of the antagonists inquiries look at verse 39 to 40 notice what happens pay very close attention to the very first verse then some of the scribes answered wait a minute just stop right there you may have blown through this in your reading but who is jesus talking to in verse 27 who was he talking to the sadducees now who is answering jesus the scribes you see the sadducees didn't even say anything 
They didn't even answer. It's the scribes that are answering. And the scribes were the scribes from the Pharisees. See the opposite side of the theological dilemma. It's kind of like the, the scribes step in and say, very good answer, Jesus. There is a resurrection. See, you Sadducees, you don't know what in the world's going on. That's what happens. They thought there were, they were, that they were outwitting Jesus, but Jesus outwits them he knows that uh, their theological gymnastics will get them to the positions that they want but that's because they weren't desiring the truth and even the other enemies of jesus affirm this and it says in verse 40 for they no longer dared to ask him any more questions they had been put down so many times And so one of the things that we need to realize finally in point number four here, we need to realize that God silences the scoffers. God silences the scoffers. There there have been scoffers, there are scoffers, and there will be scoffers, but God is going to silence them all. In, In Jude 18, he gives a very quick thing. Someday we'll preach a sermon on it. But I just want you to see this one thing. Jude writes, They say to you, these are the scoffers, In the last time, there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. That's what the Sadducees were. They were filled with ungodly passions. And he says, it is these, these people, these these who cause divisions. They are worldly people. And they're devoid of the Spirit. So you say, how in the world do, how do we fight against that? I mean, if there are scoffers all over the place, how do, do we come up with, try to be like Jesus and come up with the greatest arguments that we can? He says, no, here's what you need to do. Verse 20, he says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, and waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. In that passage, it is very clear what Jude is saying. There is a a command. There's an imperative verb there. And the imperative verb is keep yourself in the love of God. When you're facing scoffers and you see these things, he says keep yourself in the love of God. That's what we always need to be doing. Keep ourselves in the love of God. You say, well, how do I do that? Jude explains it. He gives three ways. He says you need to build up in your holy faith. He says don't he doesn't say build up in their scoffing faith. He says build up in the holy faith. Number two, he says you need to pray in the Spirit. You need to pray. You want to you have joy despite all the scoffing, all the things that are going on in the world. You need to pray in the Spirit. Finally, he says that you need to wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus. Be looking, be waiting for the joy that is to come. That's how you keep yourself in the love of God. He says you need to do that to fight scoffers. In conclusion, we go back and we just look at the theme of the passage. That those who trust in Christ for our salvation, we should trust His Word. When when God says there's going to be a resurrection, there's going to be a resurrection. We need to trust His Word. We don't need to underestimate His covenantal promise that He's going to be our God. And if He is eternal, then that love is therefore is eternal we need to not underestimate his power we need to not underestimate his creativity or his goodness see christ has promised the resurrection of life to all who believe in him and this will be greater than we imagine don't underestimate god he's made the covenantal promises and he intends to keep them they are so strong that even death itself cannot break those matter of fact he conquers death He will do this with great power, and He has the power to do great things. And also, do you think, what could we have that is better than what we have now? Don't doubt God's creativity. Just look around you. Uh, I'm just going to give one example. Just look at the beauty, how God created the earth and and where we live for the leaves to change color. You know, those are the leaves dying, when you're looking around and you're seeing those red trees and those, those orange trees, that's death. But, that, but you know what? That's not the end because new life comes forth, right? And so we see the beauty of what God has done. It's astounding His creativity. Just look at your own self. You know, God created your body to kind of function on its own. 
And I think part of that is because some of us are, well, not so bright that sometimes we might forget to do things like breathe or to blink. Oh, you're thinking about blinking now, but you weren't this whole entire day. God created your body to, He created your body to do things like heal automatically. You get a cut in your hand, a week later, it's gone. God is creative in it. It's incredible. Think about all of the, the things that He has done. Think about how He has worked out pollination or the water cycle or the food chain or the glory of coffee. I'm going to create this bean that when you grind it and pour water through it, I will give you joy. There's going to be something even greater than coffee. I don't know what it is, but it's going to be a heavenly joy, a heavenly drink. God has made these things, and He has made relationships. You know, I know because we're dealing with people, we sin against one another, we get frustrated and angry. But in the end, we, we do find joy in our relationships. Friends or husbands and wives and kids. And I've heard grandkids are really the way to go. That's, that's what I've heard. All these things God has created and they are good because He is good. And so we see His goodness that we can enjoy. Goodness that will be even greater at the resurrection. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we are thankful for who you are. We're thankful for your kindness and for your grace, for your creativity, for your power, and Lord, for your everlasting love and faithfulness to your commitment for the covenant that you have made with us that when we turn from our sin and believe in Christ, even death cannot separate us from your love. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know Christ, I pray that they would turn and they would believe. They would just cry out to you, Lord, in faith, repentance, and believe in Jesus. Lord, for those of us who know you and we walk with you and we walk with you, Lord, sometimes in the valley of the shadow of death, Lord, help us to be like David where we will fear no evil because we know that you are with us. That this life, Lord, is like a vapor. It is fleeting. We need to prepare for what is coming. And yet, Lord, we could do this with joy because of what Christ has promised. Lord, I pray that you will be truly our treasure and our joy. We will love you, Lord, with all of our heart. Lord, we just want to pray this for your honor and for your glory. It's in his name we pray. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who was and is and is to come, may his grace be upon you today. Amen. Lord bless you and have a great week.